Join ResU in thoughtful conversations that will pique your curiosity and expand your mind. ResU's thought leadership and partners will introduce unique ideas and ways that help listeners make choices that are influential, mindful, and impactful. my finger to a birdhouse accidentally. Do you have some bacon? Bacon. bacon that's right. I had bacon left over from dinner last night. Rub some bacon on it. What? On your hand, just do it. Rub some bacon on it. That's all there is to it? What if I get mononucleosis? Rub some bacon on it. Rub some bacon on it. Rub some bacon on it. Welcome to our podcast. I'm Dr. Tree Scanlon, president of Resurrection University. This edition of Thinking Out Loud is dedicated to the topic of food as medicine. As always, we like to engage with experts in conversations on interesting topics. We're talking with Dr. Christine Totes, Doctor of Chiropractic Medicine and Assistant Professor at Resurrection University. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me, Therese. Great. So food as medicine is a really vast topic. Um, We're not going to get to everything in this podcast for sure, but let's start with some common myths or ideas about food. So... Every generation, the FDA puts out a different kind of formula for how you're supposed to eat. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, the the food pyramid and a different version of the food pyramid. Now it's the plate thing. Mm-hmm. So how do you know what you're supposed to eat anymore? And is there any truth to an apple a day keeps the doctor away? <laughs> you know, cheesy things like that, right? <laughs> um, well, at no point in time did any doctor or any diet, for the most part, tell you to eat less vegetables and fruit, right? <laughs> so the the apple a day keeps the doctor away thing, yes, can be helpful, especially if you're not eating any fruits or vegetables. So, I mean, the charts exist, right? I mean, my plate is the USDA's version of what people, for the most part, should be eating now. And I don't don't know if you know this, but my plate changes based off of where you are in your life cycle, whether you're an adolescent, a young child, an, an adult, or an older adult. Mm-hmm. So it does change based on where we are in our life cycle. A lot of people think that it's a one-size-fits-all approach, and food in general is not a one-size-fits-all approach. Right. We need to find the option and the flexibility within a food and eating program based off of what your nutritional goals are. So you're really saying there is no one prescription for how we should be eating. No. What should we be eating and and how do we determine what we should be eating? Okay. So the interesting thing is in in terms of what we should be eating is I think Michael Pollan had the best uh, discussion about this is, well, you are what you eat and then you are what you eat eats, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But his whole take is that you shouldn't eat anything that your great grandma mother didn't recognize as food. Right, right. Which is basically revolving around you shopping what we call the perimeter of the grocery store. Absolutely, right? Because that's where all the fresh stuff is. Correct, exactly. So now that we're talking about the grocery store, a trip to the grocery store can be really confusing, right? For so many people. (laughs) And very complicated. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got organic, you've got whole grain, you've got Mm gluten-free, dairy-free, you know, you name it. Mm -hmm. There's labels on everything these days. And the labels can be confusing because they may not be necessarily truthful all Mm -hmm. the time, right? So let's start with organic. What does it really mean for food to be labeled organic? And does it really matter if I buy organic or not? Well, I would say it it depends on the food. If it's fresh fruits and produce, yes, it does matter if it is organic or not, which we'll talk a little bit more in depth about in a bit. But 
things that come in a box or in a carton, mm-hmm. they have to be certified organic to actually get through the standards to say that they are organic, which okay. means that they are usually, um, they'll have the non-GMO stamp on them, which means they're not genetically modified. Yep. And then they'll have the organic stamp on them. So if you're looking for organic and non-GMO, you want to make sure that those two labels are on things. You know, the tough part with food labeling is food labeling is a lot about advertising. Sure. Right. I always tease people. I was like, look, if you see advertisements for food on television, you probably just shouldn't buy it. Right. Um, <laughs> because 94% of the money spent on marketing for food is spent on advertising for processed foods. Right. Um, and the less we can get away from processed foods and whole foods, fresh fruits and vegetables and, and, and well-raised protein or mm-hmm. meat sources, the better off we are. You know, if it flashes benefits on the label of like lowers cholesterol and heart healthy and things along that line, you need to dig a little bit deeper on that label to actually see what's in that food. Yeah. Uh, Growing up, we had a milkman, we had an egg man, Mm -hmm. and he brought the chicken too, right? Mm -hmm. And so we knew exactly where our food was coming from. So shopping the perimeter of the store is Mm -hmm. really important because that's where those kinds of foods are coming from. Correct. So for the carnivores of us out there, (laughs) is there a difference between grass-fed meat pasture-raised, or any other types of meat that are out there? Sure. So um, I think we see the biggest variation in this probably in eggs, where you see things like cage-free, free-range, pasture-raised. Like, what does all of those mean? So cage-free chickens are, uh, they, they might all be hanging out you know, shoulder to shoulder with their buddy in a giant barn. Mm -hmm. So still not necessarily the best living conditions, but it's better than the cages because when they stack the cages on top of each other, the guy at the top has probably the best life, which they don't really get out of their cage much. Mm -hmm. Um, And the guy at the bottom, as I'm sure you can imagine, um, does not have the happiest life as everything rains down upon him. Exactly. Um, (laughs) But uh, the pastured chickens actually get to go outside and scratch in the dirt Mm -hmm. and run around and eat bugs like they're supposed to. So, I mean, if we've got the choice, um, what we see in pastured chickens and pastured eggs is in the eggs we see a third of the less cholesterol and saturated fat two-thirds more vitamin a two times the dose of omega-3s which are your healthy fats Mm -hmm. and three times more vitamin e so when we raise animals this way it's it's nicer for the animal it's nicer for the planet because we don't have all this waste and runoff that we're normally seeing um, from feedlot animals and when we look at cows that are grass-fed, we want to make sure that they're grass-fed and grass-finished because otherwise they'll feed them corn the last six to eight weeks of their life to fatten, fatten them up. up. Yep. Yeah, so they get more money per per weight for the cow. Mm-hmm. But then it starts to convert the bacteria that's in the cow's stomach into more E. coli, mm-hmm. which is where we hear of E. coli outbreaks of, you know, those of us that like to eat rare meat. It's <laughs> less likely that's going to happen with grass-fed and grass-finished beef. Um, and then the, those cows, um, it changes the tissue representation of fats in there. So grass-fed cows have higher conjugated linoleic acid, which is more of a fatty acid that's been shown to have anti-carcinogenic, which is Mm anti-cancer effects. And it helps to promote fat loss when you actually eat this. So it's got four times omega-3 fatty acids than grain-fed cows and more beta-carotene, vitamin E, and vitamin D. Sounds much more healthy. It is healthier. You know, and I mean, keep in mind too, right? I mean, when you look at your plate, Mm -hmm. 
I want a deck of a cards of meat and a whole bunch of vegetables. Sure. Not your whole plate is a steak and like I've got this fistful of vegetables, yeah. right? So meat in moderation can be healthy, but it sure. needs to be done in moderation. Sure. So if a consumer is wanting to find out if there's food or spices or drinks that aren't necessarily healthy for them, how do they go about figuring that out besides an elimination diet? Well, elimination diet is the free and easy way to figure yeah, out go. how to do that. <laughs> um, so what we usually do is we'll take specific foods or food groups away from people for about a month mm-hmm. and then reintroduce them to see, did the person feel better when they were off of them? And when we reintroduce them, do they notice a difference in symptoms? So what do you start with? We call them the big five yeah. is usually the ones that we start with. And those are usually dairy, gluten, and that's not just bread. That's anything that has a gluten-containing particle in it, which is in lots of things. Yeah. So we've got dairy, gluten, eggs, soy, and corn. Those are the big five. And those are usually uh, the the main culprits to the majority of people's issues. Yeah. Food sensitivities or food allergies, which which are different in their processes and how they work in the body. They can both set up an inflammatory process within Mm -hmm. the body. They just respond slightly differently, but they can give you similar symptoms. So sometimes people interchange food sensitivity to food allergy. They're not quite the same thing. Yeah. yeah. So let's say you go through this fab five, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and you're still, you're feeling better, Mm -hmm. but you're, you're not a hundred percent. Sure. So what do you do next? So there's testing that can be done. Um, It depends on what kind of testing we're looking for, whether we're looking for different types of immunoglobulins. These are um, protein structures in the blood that can cause an allergic like reaction Mm -hmm. to a specific process of food. So we can do a blood draw to check for what are called IgG or IgE reactants. Another one is secretory IgA or SIgA, mm-hmm. or there's histamine testing as well that can be done. So we need to make that determination behind what type of a reaction are you actually having. Yeah. So when I was younger, we had the, you know, the prick test on the back, right? Mm-hmm. But now I think you can do a blood test, which is you can do uh, a many more other kinds of uh, tests with just one draw of blood. Correct. Yeah. So we can do blood draws and blood draws can check for IgG, which mm-hmm. are the, the gut-based reactions, and IgE, which is what you were getting with the prick test. Okay. The scratch tests and or now they're called patch testing, okay. they're still being done. And it's especially more for people that have what are called atopy reactions, which are like, you know, I eat strawberries and I get hives or I've got eczema or dermatitis or psoriasis and I want to see if there's foods that are causing me to have more of a reaction. So if you're just not feeling good, you're feeling tired, the blood test is probably a little more accurate, no? Um, it, well, it depends. Yeah. I mean, I would say if we're really looking for a source for food allergies, yeah. I would prefer that people get them all tested so mm-hmm. that we can see because sometimes you can have IgE reactions and sometimes you can have IgG reactions. They'll both make you feel junky and tired and bloated and fatigued. But we want to make sure that um, we're not missing a section mm-hmm. by just delineating another one. And that can the IgE testing can still be drawn by a blood. Okay. So let's go back to the grocery store for a second. Sure. So as we're reading the labels on the processed food. Mm-hmm. Is there something we should stay away from? For instance, if you're going to buy a frozen smoothie mm-hmm. and it's got 38 carbohydrates mm-hmm. and 40 grams of sugar, mm-hmm. I'm assuming this is not something that's necessarily healthy for us. Or what is what is the cutoff for carbs and, and sugars? Well, so for for a lot of these, you know, I mean, I my only worry is, is have they added in with this 38 grams of carbohydrates? Keep in mind that fruits and vegetables are carbohydrates, right? right? So it's the question of are these 
are they dumping straight sugar in here? Mm-hmm. Is there high fructose corn syrup? Have they added honey? Have they needlessly added in dates? That's always my favorite in a smoothie with a bunch of stuff that's already sweet. You know, I don't necessarily think we need to add dates into things. But I usually, in terms of limits, I usually tell people that if we can stay with those carbohydrates, they'll always break it down into how much sugar's in there. Mm-hmm. So I usually tell people if we can stay under about 25 grams of sugar a day and about thir- less than 1,300 milligrams of sodium a day, mm-hmm. I know that um, I think the FDA endorses less than 2,300 grams of sugar a day if you have hypertension. They say under 1,500. So usually tell people under 1,300. And if you're cooking your own food, you know, you can add a little bit of salt because if you're not eating stuff out of a box, that's where most of the sodium comes from. Right, right. That's another interesting thing. You know, mm-hmm. why not make your smoothie yourself? Except we are in a really busy society, right? We are. And so if we're on the run, it's one thing. Right. But on a daily basis, really, you should be preparing your own food. Oh, for sure. And it saves you not only money, mm-hmm. but you can guarantee what's going into that smoothie. So like, you know, and for, especially for people that don't like vegetables, right? I yeah. mean, let's say for your little kids, like I can hide vegetables in a smoothie yeah. and you can't taste it. <laughs> you can get that kale and carrots in there and they'll never know, right? Exactly. Yeah. So another thing we hear about with food is dirty food or the dirty dozen. Mm-hmm. What is that and why are they called that? Sure. So they get called the dirty dozen. Um, this is a list of foods that changes from year to year. And And what they're checking for is the foods that have the highest quantity of pesticides in them. So the Environmental Working Group, or the EWG, and I think they're at EWG.gov, they put out a list called the Dirty Dozen. And so what these are are the top 12 foods that if you are on a budget and you want to buy organic You need to focus these 12 foods as being purchased organic because then they're not going to have pesticides on them. So this list presently for 2019 includes strawberries, spinach, kale, nectarines, apples, grapes, peaches, cherries, pears, tomatoes, celery, potatoes, and hot peppers. And I understand that's 13, but the hot peppers got thrown in at the end. Uh, It seems like that's a lot of fruits and vegetables with thin skin. Yeah, they're thinner skin, and most of them have a higher water quantity with them as well. So the thought process is, is you know, glyphosate, which is one of the biggest pesticides that's out there, which is what's in Roundup, is actually water-soluble. Oh, lovely. Yeah, so it's in our water table. Yeah, so so you didn't mention onions and red peppers and those kinds of things. Though Those you can, if you are on a real strict budget, mm-hmm. you can go and buy the traditional and just make sure you clean them before you use them, right? Correct, yeah. So there's also a list called the Clean 15. Okay. <laughs> and the Clean 15 are the ones that have the least amount of pesticides in them. So meaning that you can turn around and you can buy those non-organic. Okay. And you'll, you should be okay. And do you have that list? I do have that list. That list contains avocados, corn, preferably non-GMO corn, pineapple, frozen sweet peas. They made a, a demarcation for frozen, which hmm. I thought was kind of interesting. Onions, papaya, eggplant, asparagus, kiwi, cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli, cantaloupe, mushrooms, and honeydew. All right. Well, that gives you a good list to just buy under the traditional way, right? Exactly. So now that you've given us those two different lists, how many fruits and vegetables should the average adult consume in a day? And more importantly, why is it important to have fruits and vegetables in your diet? 
And does it matter which ones? Well, so it can matter which ones. There are certain dietary conditions where people have trouble digesting specific types of carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we have to pull them away from specific carbohydrates for a period of time while we're treating them until we can balance out their GI flora to allow them to be able to digest um, all different kinds of fruits and vegetables. Sometimes people do better with cooked veggies Mm -hmm. over raw veggies, which is completely fine. I just care that you get them in and that you get them in in their whole form, i.e. don't juice them. Uh, okay, juice pulls the fiber away, and we, we need the fiber um, in our GI tract to help feed the good bacteria in our gut, but also to help you eliminate everything else in the natural way. <laughs> um, I eat a poop. <laughs> yeah. So um, we usually tell people that what I would like for them to do is I like people to eat, the, to eat their veggies, right? And if we have to pick veggies over fruit, I'm going to say more vegetable-heavy than fruit-heavy. Sure. Um, I think the USDA says that they would like people eating five to seven servings of vegetables a day. I tell people I'd like you to eat about six cups of vegetables a day, and for some people, which includes fruits, mm-hmm. and to eat the rainbow. You know, in America here, I- I'll ask you, Teresa, in America here, of our colors oh, of vegetables, yes. what color do you think we eat the least amount of? Red or orange? I don't know. Purple. Oh, purple. purple. I wouldn't even have thought of purple. I know. Nobody right. thinks of purple, yeah. but purple's the one that we eat the less of. So I usually tell people, like, I will give them a list of foods that fall in with specific colors, mm-hmm. and I'll send them home for the week, and I, I want them to check mark how many in the red category, the orange category, the yellow category, the green category, the purple uh. category, that they do so that we can see where their deficits are to see if, then if we can sneak them in into their diet in another way. I'd fail your test. <laughs> I love green vegetables. I don't like some of those other ones. <laughs> well, you like blueberries and blackberries, right? Oh, I do. I Welcome do. to purple. There we are. Purple. Yeah, there yes, you go. There you go. So talk a little bit about the fruits, though, because every fruit isn't considered the same. So there's the low glycemic fruits versus the high glycemic, and, and you probably should be erring on the side of low glycemic, I'm assuming. Sure. So it depends on... Um, so there's this thing called a glycemic load and a glycemic index. Oh, geez. Okay. Right? So yeah. um, the glycemic index is how much sugar is in that fruit per se. Mm-hmm. And the glycemic load factors in the fiber that's in the actual fruit and the vegetable as well. So although water or watermelon has a really high glycemic index, its glycemic load isn't that bad because it's full of fiber. Oh, okay. So it kind of depends on what it is that we're looking to go. I usually tell people that if we have to pick vegetables, um, we're looking for as much more above ground plants than below ground plants. Why? Um, because they have a higher glycemic load when they're oh, below ground. Okay. All your root vegetables. All your root veggies. Exactly. All right, Chris. So if we aren't very good about eating our fruits and vegetables, we're usually told to eat a vitamin. Mm -hmm. Or multivitamin. Mm -hmm. What do you think about vitamins? And can we get what we need out of a multivitamin? So in terms of replacing food with vitamins... There's no good substitute for good nutrition. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so and it's just like I always tell people too: you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet. Right. So I have a lot of people that'll eat a bunch of junk, but they're like, "Oh, but I go to the gym," and I'm like, "Eh, "It doesn't count." Um, (laughs) You're still clogging your arteries. It's true. Well, we have an expression, right? Abs are made in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not necessarily made in the gym. So um, supplements can help, but the fiber and the vitamins from fruits and vegetables, um, as well as potentially some of our protein sources that we talked about already, Mm -hmm. as well, they're vital for your body to function properly. So if you're not necessarily the best eater, right, this is where we talk about hide it in some soup, hide it in a smoothie, hide it in something else. You can help augment your diet um, for things that are missing, especially if you have challenges where you can't digest that food. Sure. 
by using supplementation. My big deal is is making sure that you're getting your supplements from a good source. Okay. Sometimes when we're ordering supplements from uh, online distributors, we're getting Lord knows what. Right. And we don't know how they've been stored, if they've been stored at a proper temperature, if the bottle is actually what it says it is, if we're not getting it potentially from a trusted source that has that certificate of authenticity that we were talking about from before. And what's in a multivitamin isn't necessarily what everybody needs, right? So, Correct. So I know I need extra B12 because my body doesn't produce it the right way, right? Correct. Or take it in the right way. So by throwing a, a multivitamin in doesn't necessarily solve any of your problems. Right. And sometimes it can actually cause more of a problem. So in issues like having a genetic variation for how you process folic acid, Mm -hmm. if you take the non-methylated form of folic acid, which just says folic acid on it, um, that can actually sit on the receptor and it actually slows the entire process down for people that have that genetic manipulation. However, if you take a methylated form of folic acid, which sometimes you can get through pharmaceutical grade supplements Mm -hmm. where you know you're getting them from a decent source, then that's actually going to do what it needs to be done. But that's where I would tell you that working with a practitioner before you just, you know, read something online that says it's really good for you to take, you know, gigantic amounts of Bs or vitamin D, you work with a practitioner to make sure that you're taking the one that you need. So don't listen to Dr. Google. Dr. Google is not not necessarily the best doctor. <laughs> right, right. So so you, you would suggest that you go to your healthcare practitioner, yes. uh, potentially get some testing done if you're having some issues, and, and then get prescribed by your practitioner which actual supplement you need. Correct. Okay. Correct. Let's turn to water, Chris. You know, you used to hear um, eight glasses a day is what you need. Mm-hmm. But lately, there's a lot of talk about half your weight in ounces or, you know, something Mm -hmm. along those lines. So how much water should we be drinking? So I usually tell people um, we need to look at what they're taking in dietarily because there are some foods that have a higher water quantity than others. Mm -hmm. Um, How much caffeine are you taking in? Because caffeine is a diuretic, i.e. makes you pull more water out of your body. So from a generic standpoint, we do tell people that half your body weight in ounces per day is fine as long as you don't have kidney disease or some some other disease process that's necessitating us to change fluid amounts for your body. However, uh, we need to look at the foods that you're eating as well. Okay. I believe there's probably too much water you could drink also. Because sure. I remember one of my sons, when he was playing football, they kept on saying, hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. So he went and drank a gallon of water before mm-hmm. he went out to play football. And he was like, felt woozy and yes. he couldn't really think straight because I think he diluted all of the electrolytes in his body, Correct. right? Correct. Yeah. You can get you can get hyperhidrosis, which is just as dangerous to your heart and your kidneys. Mm-hmm. So that's why, especially people with kidney disease, we have to be careful with how much water they're taking in. But this can happen. This happens at least once a year mm-hmm. around the world during marathon season okay. where somebody either has a heart attack or dies from actually hyperhydrating. Well, we've actually seen football players die yes. on the on the field too when they're at practice because the, in in the summer they do doubles triples and and they're beating their bodies up and mm-hmm. they're just chugging the water mm-hmm. but they're also not putting in any um 
any nutrients in there also. So you you do have to be very careful about how much water you drink. Correct. So you start slow, though. Start slow. Yeah. So think of and I always tell people like my my best analogy for starting slow with water, especially if you don't drink a lot, is we want to replace your carbonated beverages. Right. So the pop goes out Mm -hmm. Um, unless you're sweating profusely for an hour. You have no need in your life for sports drinks. Right. Okay. Um, And we're going to put water in in its place for every cup of coffee you have. You need to replace at least one cup of water. Okay. Um, But we go low and we go slow. So if you think of yourself like a uh, like you know your plant of neglect, your favorite mm-hmm. plant, you've been <laughs> sitting in the windowsill and the dirt's all dried out. Yep. If we add that water in there slowly, the plant will slowly start to absorb it. But if you start to pour a whole bunch of water in that plant right away, it's just going to run right out the bottom, sure. which is analogous when patients tell me like, oh, you want me to drink that much water? Well, I'm just going to pee all day. Right. And yes, you're correct. You will pee all day. <laughs> so if we start low and go slow, that's where we're looking to increase your water capabilities. And then how do you know when to stop? So so you get to the half your body weight. Mm-hmm. Is that really enough? It's or... usually enough. Okay. Yeah. Um. All right. That's great. So and keep in mind, too, a lot of people will think that they are hungry. Yeah. Um, thirst can be uh, received by the brain in the body as hunger. Mm-hmm. So if we turn around and we tell them, have a couple sips of water and see if that dies that down, because usually by the time you feel thirsty, you're not thirsty anymore. Mm-hmm. So what are the benefits of drinking your half your weight in in water. Well, 80% of your body is actually made out of water. Go figure. Yeah. (laughs) So um, you can live for three days without drinking. Okay. But that's not very healthy. No, it's not very healthy. And that, you know, you're starting, that's when we're starting to, uh, your kidneys and your brain will start to break down. So that actually can, if you don't drink any water, Mm -hmm. you know, you just drink coffee or tea all day or you drink your soda, Mm -hmm. you're not going to be as productive whether you're in school or at work, um, taking care of the family at home. So you really do need to get the water in there in order to be able to be a productive member of society, basically, right? Yeah, very much so. And it's interesting, you know, I mean, as a manual medicine practitioner, um, I can usually tell if people are a little bit dehydrated because Mm -hmm. we go to try to work on them and they'll complain of body aches and pains and headaches Mm -hmm. and we'll feel their muscles and their muscles feel like jerky. It's like it's dried out. And so, you know, as we slowly start moving them into more of a status for hydration, then they usually start to notice those aches and pains go away as well. Mm -hmm. So it seems like a third of us are eating healthy, a third are trying to eat healthy, and the other just are not. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of us who are floating in between the last two, what, we, what can we do to jumpstart healthy eating? Sure, I would say... Um Start cooking. <laughs> Stop eating out. There you go. <laughs> um, shop the perimeter of the grocery store is going to be the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you walk into the store, all of the fresh produce is usually along one side. And then we've got our meats and our dairy products and our eggs along the other side. And that's and and sometimes that dairy continues along in the yeah. other case. But that's, for the most part, the major food groups that you're looking to do is your fruits, your vegetables, your proteins, and then out the store. Right. I don't mind doing a little bit of shopping. If we're doing some bulk shopping in the middle, if you wanted to get some rice or mm-hmm. you wanted to, you know, little things like that. But, you know, we have to be really careful with convenience foods, even though you're shopping at Whole Foods right. or you're shopping at Trader Joe's. Right. right. We need to look at the ingredient labels that are on those foods in the box just to make sure that um, there's foods in there that we actually recognize as foods and things you can pronounce. I usually tell people yeah. no more than five to seven ingredients in in an ingredient list is right. going to be helpful for you. And if you pull it out and you 
you know, especially for people my age and older, if you got to bust out some readers to read the list of ingredients, you probably shouldn't eat it. Or if you can't even understand the language that it's written in, basically, right? Because it's it's like Greek, right? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, it is. (laughs) How do I know what I should be eating for a healthy, balanced diet? And how would I know that I'm eating the right foods? Um, well, you're going to know that you're eating the right foods because overall, the, the process of digestion and assimilation of nutrients should sort of be like anything else in your body. It should be quiet mm-hmm. and not painful or interrupted in any way. So, right, if you eat, we should poop. Yeah. Right. So that should happen. And having a bowel movement shouldn't also be a, a big deal. Right? right. You should sort of sit down. Everything should come out and you should go on about your daily life right. where you don't have to struggle or there's pain or there's urgency or anything along that line. Mm-hmm. Um, you shouldn't be excessively bloated after you eat right. or uncomfortable either. Um, to know that you're eating enough, I usually tell people, like I said, about two cups of vegetables per meal if we can get that in. That's two small handfuls. And that's provided you eat it at breakfast. That's too. provided you eat it at breakfast. Otherwise, we're looking at three at lunch and three at dinner. There you go. <laughs> um, I mean, I eat vegetables for breakfast. I'm mm-hmm. one of those strange people that enjoys vegetables for breakfast. But um, and then a little bit of protein in there. And if you tolerate carbohydrates as well, you know, we're looking for whole grains, non-processed. So mm-hmm. we're looking for rices and quinoa and amaranth, mm-hmm. millet. I may be throwing out some grains out there that you're like, excuse me. Um, <laughs> that's what Google's for, right? And that's what Google's for. <laughs> and, and you can find the recipes in Correct. order to make them. <laughs> so where I was going. <laughs> um, and that, that is one thing that I think people need to, to realize is there are some really good resources out there for healthy meal plans, so right? So much so. Um, and you don't have to pay for it. I mean, no. I, I don't want to plug, you know, websites, but Pinterest is like, a plethora of different kinds of um, recipes that you can use and cooking light has stuff out there. And so you have no excuse. Right. And the simpler the ingredients, the simpler the instructions, the easier it is going to be for you. And it's not going to, you know, seem like a chore. Correct. And for, you know, for, you know, the tough part is, is the the kids that are going through school now, right? You know, a lot of them had busy working parents and, Potentially, food and food preparation hasn't been part of their upbringing. Right. There are numerous places that do live teaching kids knife skills and how to cook and mm-hmm. how to chop. And so if you don't have the time to be able to do that with your children, at least send them off before they go to college. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> teaching them how to cook because not only are they going to save money, but they're going to have a tendency to uh, pull for more nutritious ingredients to be able to nourish their growing brains. Mm-hmm. In comparison to, you know, going out and buying fast food. And I'm not saying that you can't have junk food here and there because you can, but it shouldn't be the norm. It shouldn't be your three meals a day. Correct. Yeah. So there are a number of packaged meal delivery services out Mm -hmm. there um, where you get the box, they give you a recipe, you prepare it yourself. Mm Are those healthy? Are they a better alternative than eating out all the time? What's your opinion? Yes, I like them. Um, I just want, always want to make sure that I do have patients that use meal delivery service, um, a variety of different ones. There's ones for vegetarians. There's one for people that eat meat as well. You can customize your uh, offerings that are included with the recipe if you have specific dietary constraints, um, as long as you're using the food. Because I've seen right. people like get the box and then they get busy and then they, you and know, the food goes 
goes bad. Exactly. So, I mean, none of us like to see food go to waste. So as long as you're actually following the the directions and using the offerings that are given for what they're intended for, then amazing. There's also pre-packaged, already put together meals for really busy people that I like as well. So they're already cooked. They're already cooked. All you got to do is warm them up. Oh. Yeah, so there's options for those as well. And okay. it's fresh food. Okay. Um, it's not in the freezer department that you can get in the grocery store, but these are usually in bigger cities or local towns that you can find these specific companies that you can customize. You're like, oh, I'm on a paleo plan or I'm vegetarian or mm-hmm. I'm vegan. And they will put together what the macros in the food are, which is the protein, the fat, and the carbs. They'll give you a general calorie count, sodium, and all the other things on the actual label that you would get for food. And it's all listed out just like your meal prep sites are. It'll tell you the same thing. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. So as, as general consumers of news, we are inundated with information about the latest food studies and and its effects on us. How does the regular person make sense of all this information we hear or read? Um, You know, for for example, when I was growing up, we grew up on butter. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden in the 70s, I think it was, oh, butter is bad for you Mm -hmm. because it's fat Mm -hmm. and you need to switch to margarine. Mm -hmm. And now we're swung the other way and it's butter only. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the example. But, you know, we're inundated with that kind of information. How do we make sense of it? So you need to adopt, which I know sounds terrible, some flexibility in your perception. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I grew up, uh, I was born in the 70s. And I came up in the 80s when the fat-free craze came about, which is when margarine got pulled in and butter was made the bad guy. And they thought from their research that fat was the culprit behind the beginning of what we were seeing as the obesity epidemic now. What they're coming to the conclusion of that it's not fat, it's actually sugar. Sugar. And so we're starting to swing that way where we're watching sugar quantities, especially added sugars. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, sometimes people are moving this all the way into how much carbohydrate are you eating as well, because that still ultimately will will break down into sugar. Mm -hmm. However... We need to just keep up to date with the research and the medicine behind it. Uh, you know, I was just recently at a seminar where, you know, they were 10 years ago vilifying soy really bad. And now they're like, you know what? Soy is not as bad as we thought it was. Sure. Unless you have certain conditions. Correct. Right? Yeah. Certain medical conditions are going to pull us away from you eating yeah. soy. But um, we just need to adopt some flexibility as more research comes out and we're finding out more about how the process is in our body, in our relationship to food, and what we've done to the food table, yeah. that's beginning the change. Okay. So so realistically, it, there is a lot of information out there. And so what kind of healthcare provider should I see or the consumer see that would help us learn more about food and nutrition and how that affects our body? Um, or is there an app for that, right? I mean, you know, we don't want to rely on Dr. Google. We don't want to rely on, you know, whatever is out there on the Internet. So who do we go to? So the hard part is, is there's lots of apps that will claim that they are going to help you with your nutrition. There you go. <laughs> um, but the tough part is, is I feel it's still something that you need to have a personalized one on one conversation with a healthcare practitioner that has some training in nutrition. Mm-hmm. 
typical medical professionals have about anywhere between 8 to 12 hours of study and nutrition. So you're going to need to find somebody that either has turned this into a love of what they're doing in the medical world or people along the lines of functionally trained dietitians, Mm -hmm. naturopaths. uh, There's a section of medicine called functional medicine that a lot of what we do is fix the diet and the lifestyle before we start working on giving medication mm-hmm. for patients, which is really what Thomas Edison said in the beginning of all of this was, first we fix diet and lifestyle, then we prescribe medication. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, thanks, Chris, for joining us today. Thanks so much, Therese. An apple a day gives the doctor away. Stay tuned to the ResU podcast here on WGN Plus for more episodes with ResU thought leaders and partners that will introduce unique ideas and ways to help listeners make choices that are influential, mindful, and impactful. ResU, it's amazing to be needed.